We're starting a new series today, and it's called, What is Church? And uh, you might say, Tim, it's kind of an odd place to be asking that question. I mean, look around you. You know, the answer is pretty self-evident. It might not be quite as self-evident as you think. It's kind of like going to the Republican National Convention and saying, what is government? And then going to the Democratic National Convention and saying, what is government? And you might get two different answers to that question. Uh, And there are churches meeting all around the world right now. Uh, Somewhere down in South America right now and in in, uh, Central America, there is house churches that are spreading like wildfire, and they look radically different than what church looks like to us. And somewhere in the middle of the night in China right now, there's an underground church that's trying to not be persecuted, and so they're meeting in the middle of the night in someone's home, hoping to not get caught. And what church looks like to them and what church looks like to us is radically different. And sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. And so if we say, what is church? It's really easy for us to see the expression of church that we've understood and to say, well, this is church. You know, or there's the, even the desire within us of what we hope church is and to say, well, this is church. And, you know, very often we miss what church actually is in its essence and we don't see the big picture. And I think there's no more important place to ask the question question, what is church, than right here, right now, today, because we need to know what church really is supposed to be all about, because sometimes, don't we just get lost in getting in the rhythm of what it is that we've always done, and we fail to step back and look and say, what is this all about? What is this thing? And you know, one of the things here in in church in America, as a pastor in church in America, you, you deal regularly with people who are used to kind of the smorgasbord mentality around church where, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and mix it all together. And that's what I think church would be, would be good at church. And, you know, we should have this going at our church and we should have that. But sometimes not everything works at every church all the time. I mean, if I go right now to some uh, cathedral and there's, you know, these beautiful high ceilings and this artwork, this masonry that's, that's done in there, and there's pictures of saints all around, and there's this liturgy that's happening, and I might walk into that and just feel like, wow, this place is reverent and holy, and God is just big and massive, and I'm small, and it might help me feel the, you know, my submission to God and, and have the sense of reverence, and yet if I go over to this, you know, uh, little community Mennonite church where they're having a fellowship meal, and they're trying to figure out what to do with this person whose barn burnt down, and how they can scrap some money together to help this person out. I get a real sense of God in the community and how relevant he is, you know, and and, and how much he's present in our lives and God working in our lives. And over here, a real structured church, we memorize the scripture and we live a certain way because we believe that as we keep the practices up and as we keep the scripture in front of us, it'll change us from the inside. And I go to some other church down in Australia where there's some guy with jeans and a t-shirt and and with a band behind him and he's screaming in love songs to God, and we say, He's, uh, they obviously believe that you change from the inside out, and if your heart gets close to God, that it'll change the outside. All different perspectives, all these different things. And you know, you can't always have all of those things happening at once in one place. And so anytime that we're missing something, we might say, well, is this really church? And what is church? And you know, sometimes we just, we forget what the big picture is and what it's all about. Josh said that yesterday he was wrecked, you know. Um, we, went to our, we went to our district conference yesterday, 
And um, it's, it's a unique expression of church. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I wonder if it's church, you know. <laughs> and um, going to a district conference is so much fun. You should all have to do it someday. Uh, it's... Uh, <clears throat> It's kind of, I was, I was saying to everyone, there was a group of us that went, and we went in Scott's van, and we were on the way back, and I said, you know how um, the day after Christmas, kids are depressed, because now it's 364 days until it's Christmas again. I'm like, when, when district conference is done, it's like the greatest day of my year. You know, I'm like, I, I have 364 days before I have to go to another one of these things, you know, and um, a part of that is because, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, the, the church bureaucracy and everything. But some of it is also because we end up building things that aren't church. Because we desire things. We desire identities that aren't just what God wants. That we get our own unique things. And there's nothing more painful than to watch the institution that's supposed to be the divine institution, the institution of God. There's nothing more painful than watching that thing become nothing short of just a human institution. You know, that's the, it's one of the most painful things to watch. Because you have great hopes that, that here's this, this family of God or whatever it is, and, and it's become this. And it's a painful thing to watch. It's a painful thing to feel. And part of the problem when it comes to defining church is that we're defining it. We define it. We define it from our perspectives, from our hopes, from our desires, from our theologies, from whatever it is. But the problem is that we're the ones defining it, we're the ones designing it, and we're the ones trying to build it. And what we can say surely is this, that if we're defining it and we're building it, then it's not the church. Because the church isn't built by human hands. It's built by God and God alone. And whatever I want the church to be really doesn't matter. It's what God wants the church to be. And whatever it is that I'm building or constructing that I might call the church, uh, you know, it, do, it doesn't really matter. God has a design and he has a plan and he has a purpose. And I need to know what that is if I want to really understand what the church is. And hopefully then God will express that in, in a very unique way here at Parker Ford Church and among us in a way that's very special and custom fit for here, but that it will be what it is that God wants it to be, not what we want it to be or not what we think church should be. That, it doesn't matter what our history is. It doesn't matter what our perspective is. It matters what God said church is going to be and what he's making it, and he'll do that very uniquely in this circumstance. And so the way we figure that out is we figure it out by looking at the scriptures. Because the scriptures are where the church is defined, where God defines. Now, when you look across the New Testament, of course, there's all sorts of pictures of the church in the New Testament. If you go to Revelation, you can see these ultimate apocalyptic pictures of, of the church, you know, in the New Jerusalem descending down. And, and you can see the, church, the seven churches that he speaks to and all the struggles with them and what they're supposed to do. You can go to First Peter and you can see the church is like a resistance movement. It's like that underground church in China. And you can see all these different facets of it. But there's three main texts of Scripture that get to the foundation that say this here, here's basic universal truth for the church. Boom. And uh, one of them is in 1 Timothy. Um, and it's real practical, very practical. It's Paul talking to his protege, Timothy. And, uh, you know, he's trying to lead church and he's trying to tell him, all right, Timothy, this is what you got to do. You got to put these overseers in place. You got to have people worship like this. You got to do this. And it's instructions on how to do church. 
you know? And it's just real practical. And it's not uh, extremely exciting, but if you're a person who's trying to lead in church, it's really important, you know? And uh, there's another passage, and that's in Acts. And Acts is probably the most fun place to look when it comes to looking at the church because you see it in its infantile state when it's birthing and you watch the whole thing taking place and you see it in full living color and it's not just theology, it's a story and you're watching it take place and when you watch it, you can say, wow, this is what church is supposed to look like, you know, and, and all that. But then there's one other place and this is, I believe, the most foundational place to look when it comes to understanding what church actually is. Not just how you're supposed to organize it or, or the attributes that it has, but when it comes to what actually is church, and it's the book of Ephesians. And let me tell you about the book of Ephesians a little bit. This is what happens in the book of Ephesians, is Paul decides that uh, he's in prison, and he's locked up, and he's coming to the end of his time here on earth, and he's looking at these churches all over the place that he's planted, and you know what's going on is that he knows, he knows what's going to happen, is that there's going to be a slow digression away from what it is that the church is supposed to be, that naturally the human institution is going to take over. And so what does Paul want to do? As he's sitting there in prison, he begins to write to the church of Ephesus. And he says, I'm going to give them a letter that serves as a foundation that when they need to know what church is about, they can look back and from the ground up can see the whole framework, the whole theology, the whole purpose, the plan. What is this thing? So they can stay on target. And that's really what happens in the book of Ephesians. So what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. Today is going to be a lot different than the rest of the series. Today is going to be a real, like, um, well, you'll see. Uh, it, the rest of this is going, to be, is going to be different than the rest of the series. Um, but we're going to be breaking down the book of Ephesians and just looking at it. We're not go- doing justice to the whole book of Ephesians. We're really looking to understand what is the church in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to be covering some serious ground scripturally today uh, on this first day. Um, So I want you to join me in prayer, and then we're going to read that. God, we thank you for your church, and we want to know what church is. We know what we've experienced, and some of us have been deeply, deeply wounded inside of church, of this thing that we call church. But we also know that whatever it is that you define as church is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we've also experienced some of the beauty of that. And God, our hope for, for this congregation and our hope for, uh, for your kingdom is that you will help us to understand and to know together not what it is that we want or what it is that we're headed toward, but to know what it is that you're building, to understand what it's all about. And so we ask you to reveal that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, normally I'd have you stand for the reading of God's word in honor of it, but we're not going to do that because there's a lot. we're going through a lot of scripture and it's packed tight with beautiful theology. And so what I want you to do here is uh, I want you to read along. If you have a, a Bible with you, I would urge you to bring Bibles with you, please. And if you have it with you, I'd urge you to open it. If you don't have one, there's ones in the back. And if you don't have one at all, please take one home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, so Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world 
to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But God, of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming, of the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we 
are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. It's an awesome passage of Scripture, isn't it? Profound, profound passage of Scripture. Now, we don't have a ton of time here, so how are we going to break down all of that in a short period of time? We're going to um, diagram it, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to diagram it. So um, let's pull this side around. Thank you. And, uh, and I'm going to pull out the whiteboard. Uh, the whiteboard hasn't been pulled out here in a while, and part of that is because Josh hasn't been doing a whole lot of preaching lately because he's been focusing on Christian ed. And uh, so thank you. Appreciate it. And so, uh, um, you know, this is going to be... Uh, I think my debut with the whiteboard. Um, so I don't do much of the whiteboard teaching. I'm more of the exhorting preaching thing, as you know. But today we're going to be doing a little more teaching, trying to tear apart this passage a little bit because we need to understand what the church is. And this passage shows us at the core what the church actually is, where it starts, what it's all about. And we need to diagram it because there's all sorts of threads of theology running all through this passage. And we need to pull some of those threads out and put them on the board so we can see them here in a simple fashion. Okay, so first of all, the first thing I want us to see is I want us to see what God's purpose is. I have horrible penmanship and what's more is, is that in the first service, people told me that. So, you know, if people tell you that you have bad penmanship, you know it's actually bad. I hope that you can uh, make out what it is that I'm saying, okay? So first, we're going to look at what God's purpose is in this passage. He actually has a purpose. There's something that God, in everything that he's trying to do, there's a purpose. He has a purpose, which is different than a plan, a plan is how to get there. The purpose is what you're trying to achieve. What is it that God's trying to achieve? That's the first question. What is it that God is trying to achieve? I want you to look at verse 5 into verse 6, okay? Verse 5 says, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Christ in accordance with His pleasure. There's His pleasure and His will. Now why? To what end? Verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Actually, I'm not even going to write that down yet. To the praise of His glorious grace. If you look over in verse 10, actually, let's start in verse 9. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. What is that purpose? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Okay, so first, it was to the praise of his glorious grace. Secondly, it's to bring everything under the head of Christ. And then verse 12, uh, we'll start in verse 11, leading into it. Verse 11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose, with the purpose of his will. So here it is, the purpose, verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Praise of his glory. So here's, every time he's talking about what it is he's trying to do, he ends with telling us what's the end here? What's the purpose? The first thing was to the praise of his glorious grace. The second thing was to bring everything under the head, which is Christ. And the third thing was to the praise of his glory. The common theme here is that God wants to do this right here, okay? He wants to spread his, what's the word? Glory. 
He wants to spread his glory. This is what's going on. This is God's purpose is to spread his glory. That's what he's trying to accomplish. The chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The point, what is it that God's trying to do? Spread his glory. That's the purpose. The grand purpose in all of it is for God to spread his glory. Now that's a little bit like, you got to understand what that means. Because that could just sound arrogant, actually. Like, does God need to flex his muscles so that we're impressed? Does God need to get more people to praise him because he's insecure? Is that what it means for him to spread his glory? Like, I need to be glorified more. I need a little more. I'm feeling a little low right now, guys. I need a little more praise. Come on, give it to me. You know, is that God? No. God doesn't need that at all. God isn't insecure. He's completely confident. So why would he need to spread his glory? Well, let me explain glory for a second. Glory is all the things that surround something that reveal what's valuable about it. Everything that surrounds something that reveals what's valuable about it. So when someone's standing up and, they're, and, and there they are and all the music's playing and they're standing there after they won the game in all their glory, it's all that stuff that surrounds them that shows that there's something special. Everything that surrounds God that reveals the beauty of who God is and what's inside of him is his glory. It's revealing the beauty of God. And what is the beauty of God? It's his character. And what's the core of God's character? What's at the very center of God's character? His most central characteristic? Love. And not just any love, agape love. See, at the very core, instead of God being a black hole and things coming into God, it comes out the other way and everything comes out from God to us. He is a giver, not a taker. Okay? And so as God's glory spreads, his love spreads, his character spreads. I don't know about you, but the fact of his glory spreading seems like a great thing to me. If what the glory is, is God's reputation, his character revealed, man, I want more and more of that revealed. Not just for his sake, but for all of our sakes. We need God's glory desperately to be revealed. Okay? So... God's purpose is to spread his glory. All right, now we're going to keep looking here, okay? Uh, second thing that we're going to look at, we were talking about uh, God's purpose, but now we need to look at God's plan. So God also has a plan in this, in this passage. He, the, the purpose is that he's trying to spread his glory, but how's he going to get it done? So this is what's he trying to achieve, spread his glory. But then there's a plan, how's he going to get it done? Now I want you to look at a few, passage, a few uh, verses with me. This is more like a Sunday school class today, isn't it? This is like, we're like a big Sunday school class. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Okay? So his plan for, for spreading his glory, first of all, is to make a people who are holy and blameless. He wants to set apart a people who are holy and blameless. Holy means set apart. Blameless, nothing wrong with us. You know? perfect. So what he wants to do is set a people apart to make them look really good. That's what he's trying to do, first of all. Verse 5 continues on. Verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So what's he trying to do there? What's his plan? To have a family. He's making a family, adopting us as sons. He wants to make offspring. So he's making a people who are holy and blameless. Then he's making a family. Why making a family? When you have offspring, it reveals his image, who God is. Kids look like parents. He is getting a family that looks like him. So he's building this family. He's building these people. And chapter 2, verse 10, at the end, it says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So he is making a glorious people, okay? His plan is to spread his glory by making a glorious people, particularly these, this glorious people, particularly they, through three things, right? Holy and blameless. Can everybody read my handwriting? Can you guys tell the people in first service that you can read my handwriting? Right. What now? Yeah. Um, secondly, he's creating a family, okay, offspring. And then third, he was making a people to do his work. We'll just say, we'll just say good works. This is what he's trying to do. Okay, he's trying to make a glorious people who are holy and blameless, who look like him, who carry his image and who do his work and carry his good works. This is what it is. His plan spread his glory by making a glorious people who look holy and blameless, who carry his image and who do his work. That's his plan. God's big game plan. Okay, in order for spreading his glory. All right. Now, God also has a choice about who it is that he's going to get to do this. So, Choice. In verse 4, who is, in verse 4 and 5, it says he chose somebody in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, it says he predestined someone to be adopted as his sons. Who is it? Us. Okay? So this is simple. This is real simple right here. Us. Okay? That's not the U.S. That's us. Who is us? Who is us? Who is us? Church? Huh. It's a really good question. Well, it's certainly the Ephesians, because that's who it's being written to, but Paul's not one of the Ephesians. So basically, he's saying those of us who have believed, right? The saved. The redeemed, the believed. See, there's a problem though. It's those who are hearing the message. It's those who he has chosen. It's these people who he has called out. These people who he is trying to use in his plan. See, God has a purpose to spread his glory. God has a plan to make a glorious people. And then he chooses us to be these people. But there's a dilemma and there's a problem. What's the problem? Right, it's not a rhetorical one. I'm looking for an answer on that us, we're the problem. Oh my goodness, like he chose us, but we're the problem. The problem is that these characteristics of what it is that he's trying to get, people who look like him, people who are holy and blameless, and people who do good works, that's not us. But he said it was us. He chose us to be these things, but that's not me. Maybe it's you, but it's not me. You know, that's not naturally how I roll. You know, I'm not holy and blameless. Just ask anyone who was raised with me or just ask anyone who hung out with me yesterday. You know, um, and it says that I'm supposed to look like God. But, you know, I, hmm, you know, there's days and good works. Like, okay, so there's a problem. We as humanity did not fit the bill. 
And so the problem is, is God has a purpose and God has a plan and God has a choice, but there's a problem between his choice and his plan. It's not actually working between his choice and his plan. Something isn't going to function well, but somewhere between his choice and his plan. And those of you who work in a corporate setting, if you're, you know, setting out a strategy here, you know, what's, what are our goals? What are our intentions? What's our strategy? Okay. What are our resources? Uh Uh-oh, our resources don't match our strategy in order to accomplish accomplish God's plan, our our plan, our goals. It doesn't work. We need something else. What do we need? We need other resources. We need a gift. We need provision. And this is the rest of the passage. What it is that it talks about is God's provision. Okay? So God's provision. Got to put God here. God's provision. All right? Now, God's provision is all through this passage. Anywhere that it is that he's given us something, I want to look first in, in verse 3. You know, before, before I go there, I've I got to say one other thing about God's choice. You know, every time we hear about God saying he chose us, he predestined us, what does that do? What, what, what th- those of you who have been in church for any length of time, what does that make you feel or think about when all of a sudden you hear these words about God's choice and his predestination? Like, doesn't it bring up all those, like, conversations about did God choose us or do we have a free will and all that stuff? You know what? I, it just it frustrates me to no end because what happens is when we start having that debate in our head, we lose the beauty of what this passage is really all about. I'm not saying it's not an important question. I'm not saying that the millions of pages of paper that have been written on those topics have been wasted. What I am saying is that there's a deeper point to God's choice that often gets missed between trying to figure out what, how much power do I have in this situation? How much is my choice worth? And all of that versus God. There's a, there's a bigger point when it comes to God saying he chose us and he predestined us. Okay, listen. This is the, this is the point. God chose us before we chose him, okay? No matter what you believe, you know that God's first, right? He pre-existed us. He knew everything ahead of time. The point, the point is that no matter what happens, it all has to start with God initially, It's not like God just sits there and decides what it is that we're going to do and then he reacts to it. God doesn't do things because we're going to do it. God does it because God decides that he's going to do it and God can do whatever he wants. And what God wants to do is he wants to choose us and he wants to love us. And that's long before we ever loved him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love because he first loved us. Everything starts with God. And you know what's awesome about that? That no matter how much I mess up, and no matter how much I choose to not love God, guess what? It doesn't change his love at all, because his love is eternal. His love is unending. His love was pre-existent. His love is unconditional. His love is not affected by my love. His love isn't trivial, and it doesn't mess up just because I mess up. His love is way bigger than my love. His choice to love me changes everything, not only because it can change my life, but because even if it doesn't change my life, he's still loves me. He loves me no matter what. You know why? Because he chose to, not because we chose, because God comes first. And therefore, there's nothing I can do to change his mind. He loves me because he loves me, because he is God. That's a cool thought. 
And before I get into free will and predestination and all that stuff, I need to know what the, the important part, that it starts with him and that his love can't be messed with. You know, it can't be changed. That's an awesome thought. Okay, that was all just completely, totally for free and a side note. Um, so God's purpose, spread his glory. God's plan is to make a glorious people, but he chose us and it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. So he needs to give a provision. And what's the provision? Verse three, I love this. It says, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, so he's given us every blessing in Christ. Verse 6, I love this. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, so he freely gave us grace in the one he loves. How did he deliver the grace? By giving us a gift. What is the gift? The one he loves. The one. Who is the one who he loves? Jesus. How do you know that? Where else in the scriptures? Very famous passage of scripture where it talks about the one who he loves. John 3.16. What does it say? Say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The only begotten son. The one. So what is the gift? He, he gives us this one. We want to break it down a little bit more. In verse 7, it talks about the grace that he gave to us. Now watch this grace in verse 7. Listen to it. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So he gave us grace, but he gave it to us in the form of two things. What are the two things that he gave us in there? You see it? Forgiveness of sins and what? Redemption, okay? Redemption. And forgiveness. Now check this out, okay? How does this help us with this problem? This problem that doesn't work here. We don't fit this bill, do we? We're not holy. We don't fit this bill. We're not blameless, are we? We have blame. So what does he have to do? Forgiveness. That's what he has to do. If he forgives us, we don't have blame anymore. He found a way to clear it. Now, offspring. We're supposed to be God's family. We don't look like him. You know, here's the deal when it comes to humanity. We are worshipers. Every person on this planet is a worshiper. Did you know that? There's not one person on this planet who's a worshiper, that's not a worshiper. Every person is a worshiper. We are created to be people of worship. There's nothing we can do about that. We have to worship something. We have no choice but to worship something. And all we get to choose is what it is that we'll worship. And in the Garden of Eden, we made a choice. We made a choice what it is that we would worship. And there's basically two things to worship. And, and in chapter 2, you remember reading it in chapter 2, in verse 2? We'll start in, in verse 1 there. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed. That's, you could just say worship there, inserted Worship the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You see that? So 
We're either in submission to God, obedient to God, worshiping God, or we're in submission to the ruler, the spirit of the air, right? Satan. We either eat the fruit or we don't. It's that simple. But we're going to choose to listen to Satan or we're going to choose to listen to God in every situation in our lives. So because of that, in the garden, we chose who our daddy was, didn't we? Who provides for us? Who advises us? Who do we listen to? And who did we choose? Satan. Say it. Satan. All right, we chose Satan as our daddy. That's what we did as people. That's what we did as a humanity. So Satan was our daddy. However, we have been redeemed. What does it mean to be redeemed? Sort of. Technically, what does it mean? Bought back. Purchased. It says right there, redeemed by the blood. It costs the blood of Jesus to buy us back. To adopt us as sons. You see this? So the redemption, what does it get us? Family. We were not his offspring. We looked like the enemy. We didn't look holy and blameless. We looked like the enemy. But because of his redemption, he buys us back and he makes us his kids. He adopts us as children. You see, for every place where God's plan comes up short in regard to us, he provides something to fix it. We have one left, don't we? There's one left here. And that was, that was down in 2.10. It says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God preordained that, that we would do in advance. Okay, now, there's a problem. We're not people who produce good works. We're people who produce all sorts of other things other than good works. In general, that's how, that's how we naturally roll. But God provides something else for us. Look in chapter 1 and in verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So what is it that we were given? Thank you. Holy Spirit. We were given the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? That's all that stuff, right? God's character. God's trying to spread His glory. What is that? It's His character revealed. Now, all of a sudden, we are going to reveal the character because if the Spirit is in us, it's going to produce His fruit, which is the character of God. What's more is not only the fruit of the Spirit, but the works of the Spirit because we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and in Ephesians 4 that there are these gifts that the Spirit brings to mankind and they're called spiritual gifts. The Spirit comes and gives us a gift and when the gift is inside of us, it's there so that we can do the works of service. And so God, through his spirit, gives us the ability to do these good works, okay? So here we are. We couldn't be holy and blameless, so we were given forgiveness. We couldn't be his kids because we were sold out to Satan, but he bought us back and made us his family. We couldn't produce the good works, but he gives us the Holy Spirit, which is known as the Spirit of Jesus in both Acts and Philippians. So we are given, here is God's provision Jesus, right? Jesus is the provision. He is the provision. His purpose is to spread his glory. His plan is to make it through a glorious people. 
His choice is us. We can't do it, so he gives us Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, it can actually happen, okay? We can be the people of the praise of his glory. We can be this people. We can be the one to spread his glory. Why? Because on this cross, Jesus hangs on a cross, and he makes this thing possible. That's how it works. You see, if you ask Right here, right now, what is church? We can say what we think it is. We might say the natural, the natural uh, evangelical American answer is what is the church? And the answer is what? Well, it's us. We're the church. Guess what? That's not what the scriptures say is the first thing that the church is. It's not the first thing. Listen, in chapter 1, verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. There's one phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again in this chapter, in these two chapters. It's the phrase, in him, in him, in him. From where we're standing, we look around and we say, what's the church? Well, it's us. If you ask the Father right now, what is the church? He looks down and he says, in its most embryonic form, in its most basic form, you know what the church is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The church, it's not us. It's him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I don't exist anymore. There is no Tim. I'm only just a finger in the body of Christ. The church isn't me. It's Jesus manifested on earth. And anytime there's something that doesn't look like Jesus, guess what? It's not the church. It's the leftover garbage of my life. That's still Tim. The good stuff that rises to the top, that's Jesus. And and that's the church. That's what church is supposed to be. That's what God is actually building the church to be. He's building it to be Jesus on earth. This is why he says to us, greater things will you do than I have done. Because when his spirit comes and lives within us and we die to self and we rise up with him, then all of a sudden here he is working through us on earth, Jesus incarnate, still walking the face of this planet through this thing that God calls the church. The thing that we call the church, I don't know how to define that one for you because that one boggles my mind every day, whatever it is that we call church. But what he calls church is his son on earth, manifesting his spirit in broken people who are died, who have died and are being resurrected through him. And he is building them into this thing that he calls church. We are the redeemed only because he's the redeemer. We are the saved only because he's the savior. We are the forgiven only because he's the forgiver. We are the offspring only because God is the father. We are loved only because he is the lover. We are the church only because we exist in him. The church is not us. The church is him. And we pray and we beg that God will continue to birth us in him and less of us and more of him. Because the church, the world, it doesn't need us. It doesn't need us at all. It needs him. But we got to die, and he's got to rise. That's the church. That's the foundation of the church. It's him. It's the common denominator across the board, across the world, in all of those different places. What is the forest through the trees? It's Jesus. It's got to be all Jesus. 
Jesus is not dead. He's not a theory. He's not a religion. He's not a theology. He's a living being who potentially is living within us and manifesting himself here on earth again through us, not just each of us individually, but all of us together. He comes together and we form the body, the manifestation of God here on earth. It's a beautiful picture. And God's a great builder, a wonderful designer. He's making us. He's developing us. He's creating us to be in him, in Jesus, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? All right, let's pray.